Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 38 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And welcome, Moira. Hello, Dave. Good to be back. Hello, everyone. So this episode, we're going to be talking about sleep in pregnancy. And we've got Dr. Leora Kempler from the ASA Working Group on Sleep and Pregnancy, and she gives some really great advice about managing sleep throughout pregnancy. So before we get into that, can we have a little brief chat about the parliamentary inquiry? Because the recommendations are out. Have you read those? I have. And what a fantastic effort by the whole sleep community Mm. in Australia. One, to get the inquiry in the first place. And then to make such a great breadth of appearances before the inquiry yeah. and yep. to really sort of give a good briefing to guide the recommendations. Yeah, yeah across the, the patient group, the different professionals, different research groups. And they've, um, the, you know, they've called it bedtime reading and we'll put a link to this in the show notes. And there's 11 recommendations. Uh, and I think they've, they've some, nailed it really. They've summed it up um, and they've summarised all everything that they've heard and everything they've read. And um, what do you think of the recommendations? Yeah, I really like them. There's a real focus on um, an education focus, so the need for educating lots of different groups, including health professionals, about sleep and sleep disorders and how to then provide services for sleep in the community. Yeah. Um, There's great representation from the hypersomnia and narcolepsy patient groups, which has led to some specific recommendations about access to treatments for narcolepsy and hypersomnia, as well as more focus on research in those areas, which is yeah. really oh, fantastic. It, yeah, because it has been, it's, it's really important. That has been an area that's been neglected, I think. Um, and then it's, so it's interesting now to see what will be done with it. Thankfully, it's got bipartisan support. So each yeah. side's committed to taking these recommendations forward. Mm. So uh, unlike other inquiries, we hope they just don't go into the trash bin and right. move on to the next yeah. thing. But we'll actually Certainly. see some of this roll out. So the theme for this month's podcast is sleep in pregnancy. And as we'll hear, and as is common knowledge for people, sleep problems are really common in pregnancy. And also from a physiological point of view, sleep changes a lot across pregnancy. So it's not as if just pregnancy is a single state and sleeps the same throughout the whole pregnancy. And for people to sleep well in pregnancy, they do have to shake up some of their beliefs and thoughts about sleep. And if their strategy coming into pregnancy for managing sleep has been, you know, I'm going to control it, I'm going to, you know, really keep a tight rein on sleep, yeah, be prepared for things to shake up a bit because you can't control it quite as well. That's right. So in people you might see about sort of pregnancy and insomnia, Moira, what are some of the things that you see? Yeah, well, I suppose I can comment even on a a personal level because my kids are grown up. This is the first time I ever had sleep difficulties was with my first pregnancy and in the subsequent ones as well. And luckily for me, I think because I was already a health professional, already had stacks of older sisters, cousins, like I I just normalised it. I didn't really worry about it that much. I just considered, oh, well, I'll go with this. Um, but I do see that it does cause a lot of anxiety in people. And on reflection, when I do in my um, clinical practice over the years, if I'm thinking about it, especially preparing for this podcast, a lot of the people I see are actually people I've seen earlier. They might have had a lot of difficulty after their first baby or during the pregnancy of the first baby, and we get that sorted. And so then we're on to it a bit more with their second or subsequent babies. So I might see them then during pregnancy. But apart from that, I don't actually don't see a lot of women specifically for sleep during their pregnancy. 
it's generally uh, maybe about anxiety or other things. And, of course, I bring the sleep into it and, and normalise it and, and try and teach them to just go with it a bit more. What about you? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And then maybe that's another one of our educational imperatives. You know, in the same way people might have pre-pregnancy counselling or go to prenatal classes, get the sleep there. Almost be upskilling people about better sleep and different ways of thinking about sleep and an approach to sleep, yeah. either pre-pregnancy or early on in pregnancy. Yeah, but it's a bit of a um, – got to be really careful, don't you, because what happens when, with the more information you have and if you go too hard on talking about how important sleep is – that can backfire and people can get really a bit worried then about, oh, I'm not sleeping, therefore I'm going to harm the baby. And, and so, yeah, that's why we've got the expert, Leora, to, to talk through those sorts of things. A nice segue. So Leora does point that out a bit about how we have to sort of soften the way we think about yeah. sleep. So Dr. Leora Kempler is a psychologist who specialises in sleep and perinatal health, and she's at the Walcott Clinic in Sydney as well as Integrated Sleep Health. So thanks a lot for helping us out, Leora. It's great to have you as part of the podcast. Thank you for having me today. So one of the things I wanted to open with is what actually happens to sleep in pregnancy? Well, a lot happens to sleep in pregnancy. And I think that the important thing to remember is that actually a lot of changes happen to your body and your appetite and your metabolism. And I think it's logical to realize that sleep is part of all of that. So a lot of people are very open to those changes in metabolism or their general feeling of health, but they're much less open to the changes of sleep. And that's what can kind of be related to the anxiety that might come with that. The first thing to say is, yes, changes will occur. It's very natural for changes to occur. And, and if you expect it, hopefully the impact will be less. Essentially, the, the changes that occur is usually sleep duration, at least in the first trimester, is usually within the normal range of about seven hours a night. People may start waking more frequently, specifically to use the bathroom, especially in the first and the third trimester. They also can have increased sleep onset latency or the amount of time that it takes for them to fall asleep. They may also become more aware of their nocturnal awakenings, partly because they might be uncomfortable or might be nauseous. A lot of people, about half of people, report that their nausea affects their sleep. And so for some, that may subside for the second trimester when the nausea improves. 82.5% report frequent urination as a cause of sleep disturbance. Seems like that's not something people can escape from. And I think what really compounds the problem is that in addition to poor sleep, or at least newly poor sleep, people are much more tired when they're pregnant because of their increased progesterone. And because of that, they're attributing a lot of those problems to their poor sleep when actually they're most probably going to be tired anyway. Yeah, that's a really nice point because we yeah. see that outside of pregnancy in the work we do, that attributional bias. About, that's right, yeah. I'm tired, it must be the sleep. So yeah, I really like that point about, yeah, there are other factors about pregnancy that may well make you tired. Oh, absolutely. But look, at, at, at the end of the day, I think that if you do have that opportunity and ability to get more sleep and you do feel you need it, then by all means, people should strive for that. Why not? The other one that I wanted to mention actually is a raised core body temperature. And again, that, that's hormonal and very normal when you're pregnant, particularly again in that early period. But when you're hot, it's much harder to get to sleep. Yeah, and that's interesting too. So we see that too outside of pregnancy that sometimes people find, you know, they they just don't get that cooling off, which is sort of part mm. of the normal falling asleep 
uh, process. So I can imagine in pregnancy that would only be um, more exacerbated and more of a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And especially I think people find it difficult when they wake through the night really hot and they're certainly not accustomed to that, you know, in the past or before pregnancy. And then what about later on in the pregnancy, sort of once people really get closer to delivery? So look, I really hate to be the bearer of bad news and I often feel like that's part of my job. For some people, sleep will improve in the second trimester, particularly if nausea is a large cause of their poor sleep. Then, you know, obviously when the nausea subsides, their sleep will improve. But actually studies have shown that for many, sleep does not improve. And actually as pregnancy progresses, the sleep can get worse and worse particularly when pain and discomfort become more prominent, uh, increased fetal movement, people find the baby can be waking them. I like to remind people that actually that's a really good indication that your baby's healthy. So maybe that's just a different way of seeing things. Of course, people also can have heartburn as the baby gets bigger. As they get heavier, they're more likely to snore, which means they're also more likely to get something like obstructive sleep apnea. It's not always the case. Sometimes it's positional But, you know, it's certainly relevant for more people than prior to pregnancy. And sleep efficiency and slow-wave sleep are actually lower in the final trimester relative to the first trimester and before pregnancy as well. How do the social things interact with that? Because there is that social thing of by the time you've made it to the third trimester, you're visibly pregnant and people seem to cut you some slack. You know, it's, it's more socially acceptable to be tired in your third trimester. Fair point, actually. And often in the first trimester, people don't even know that you're pregnant, you know. So you can certainly be suffering quietly in that way. And certainly by the third trimester, people are much more accommodating and open to people being tired and allowing them that space at work for that. But I think that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to take that opportunity. You know, I, I don't really know any people that clock out for a quick nap and then come back or anything like that. I think it would be lovely if that's something we could do, but I don't think society's at that point yet. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for that. We need to get to that yeah. point because the data's well, good. Shows, shows yeah, it's a great strategy. I was strategy. just going to say, actually, this is really independent of pregnancy, but we should all have little napping pods in the office. Just going to add to that because, you know, as I was saying about the third trimester, but I think those final days and weeks of pregnancy are quite a different thing altogether because the body starts to prepare to give birth essentially and so you get these peaks in oxytocin and we see most women essentially go into labor at night time and it's really important to kind of realize that kind of had nine months of poor sleep then you in labor overnight often so you've kind of lost another night of sleep so a lot of women, probably a large majority of women, will go into motherhood quite severely sleep-deprived, and uh, this might be a whole separate podcast, but um, it may not necessarily improve much from there. Now, for women who are pregnant, you've given us the bad news. You know, It may not necessarily be great in terms of sleep. So what yep. can women do? Look, I think the most important thing is to, number one, really normalize the process. You know, like I said at the beginning, your body's changing basically in every possible way. So it's only logical that your sleep's going to change too. And if you can have realistic expectation with regard to that, at least that will reduce the effect that anxiety might have in compounding the problem of poor sleep. Practical things you could do, so of course it depends on what the cause of the poor sleep is. 
If nausea is a problem, for example, a lot of people find it useful to have a bit of food in the stomach. So having a little carbohydrate or a low GI snack before bed or some Greek yogurt or a banana has tryptophan in it that helps you sleep anyway. And just have, have some food before bed you know, between dinner and bed so that you're lining the tummy a little bit and not waking with an empty stomach. That can help if nausea is the problem. If frequent um, urination is the problem, and, and for most people that is the case, I never tell people not to drink. I think it's really important to drink, but you can certainly be aware of the schedule of your drinking throughout the day and try and have more of it towards the beginning of the day and ease off towards the end of the day. It might be easier to drink when we get home, but I think if you've got a water bottle on the desk at work, that might encourage you to kind of consume your liquids during the day uh, rather than later. I think this is for really not even just pregnant people, but just all of us in general at the moment. Sleep is a really negotiated behavior. And I use that word because people will wake up early to do exercise or go out late to see friends. And it's always the sleep, the sleep that gets sacrificed. And pregnancy is just not the time in your life to be doing that type of thing. I think it is important to exercise. I think it is important to see your friends. But if you've identified that you have poor sleep, it's a time to prioritize your sleep rather than those other things. Yeah, I really like that point because it's, you know, pregnancy as well as other t- phases in life, it's a busy time. There's yeah, it's a, whole a, lot, busy time. a whole lot going on. And yes, recognizing that, you know, sleep can't be pushed to the sides or, you, or people can't roll with it or don't have the capacity to just go with it or cope with it if they're sleep deprived, uh, as they would be outside of pregnancy. And and to be honest with you, I think that, you know, everybody needs to own, know their own limit. And if you're having a second and third child, you might, you might have disrupted sleep in addition to the pregnancy. So you really need to know what's healthy for you and, and make those changes according to that. As your pregnancy progresses and obviously the causes of your poor sleep changes, if something like discomfort or pain is the cause of your poor sleep, a gentle massage or a warm shower before bed can help you just with the sleep onset if you're not in too much pain before that. I didn't mean to mention it earlier, but sleep disorders are much more common in pregnancy as well. So it's important to identify if that's an issue for you. Of course, restless leg syndrome is more common in pregnancy. Sleep apnea, like I said, is more common in pregnancy. If you have restless legs, magnesium and iron supplements could be useful, but that's the type of thing you need to be discussing with your GP or your midwife or your obstetrician. But certainly trying to solve any physical causes of poor sleep, it would be important. Like I started to say earlier, I guess when you when, when your baby is what's keeping you awake, rather than seeing it as an annoyance and, oh, this baby's already waking me up, I think it's a really encouraging way of saying, okay, I'm growing a healthy baby here and thinking of it that way and going to sleep with a smile on your face rather than this baby's already waking me. And then that's about through the pregnancy. So then what about in a more proactive sense? So just say, for example, and this is something I see, someone who had real trouble after the delivery of their first baby and some struggling with insomnia with their newborn, they're almost dreading what's going to happen with sleep coming into a second pregnancy and then sort of postpartum. What sort of things could they do in preparation so that. that's a really important issue and I'm really glad you've got you've brought that up because I also see a lot of patients like that but there aren't that many people around that can treat that type of patient. Uh-huh. So I think um on the one hand you need to have a look at your toddler or your first child 
and see how much of their sleep is causing your poor sleep or, you know, contributing to your poor sleep and trying to manage that first. Now, that sounds very simple. And of course, anybody listening to that would be thinking, well, obviously, we're going to try and improve our child's sleep. But I really do mean being proactive about it. I think it's important to be able to identify, okay, what we're doing in our life isn't currently working. We need to make quite a significant change in order to improve the family, so to speak, and improve the health of the family. And so if that's an issue for you, you know, you can get help from Tresillion or Caritani or any of those types of sleep nurse type places. If it's insomnia that's the issue, again, this is a really big gap in in the health system as far as I'm concerned. There are a number of psychologists that offer cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And it certainly can be very useful for a pregnant woman with another child as well, but it needs to be delivered by a person who really understands what's going on for the patient as well. So hopefully it can be delivered by a person who understands the needs of a pregnant woman as far as sleep goes and the needs of a baby or a toddler or whatever the first child is as well and just kind of the family dynamics and the boundaries around that. But in terms of managing the anxiety, the CBTI could certainly be effective for that as well. Yeah, feeling like you're coming into it with at least some skills, some tools in your toolkit that you be able to put into place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I say this to everybody about everything. The worst thing you can do is nothing. The worst thing you can do is realize that there's a problem in your life that's not working and sit with it. The best thing you can do is something. <laughs> you know, identify there's a problem. Okay, I need to do something about this. I need to book an appointment with someone. I need to see someone and I need to make some changes because these things don't change themselves. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, Rather than just hoping the next one will be different, recognizing yeah. see, that last experience wasn't that pleasant and it's <laughs> high likelihood a similar thing may happen again. What could I do in the intervening period to change, That's exactly right. change the outcome? And I've heard, I've certainly heard people say to me, well, I deserve a sleeper this time, so I'll probably get one. And I've thought to myself, oh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah. Another subtlety is sometimes, you know, for me, I think particularly once the baby's born, having a pretty fluid way of thinking about sleep, mm. sleep whenever, wherever, whenever opportunities arise, is a much more sort of helpful way of thinking about sleep rather than being very rigid. It must occur yeah. in this way and under these circumstances. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, I don't. you're probably familiar with the CBTI program, but I don't know about the listeners, but a lot of the kind of boundaries that, CBTI and, and general kind of sleep hygiene will kind of place on you, they're great in many ways, but they can be counterproductive in the circumstance of being woken through the night or, or having the opportunity to nap during the day. You know, often they'll say to you, oh, well, you mustn't nap because it's going to destroy your night of sleep when in reality, your schedule doesn't allow for a solid night of sleep. So napping during the day could potentially be very helpful in that circumstance. And the other thing is some of those guidelines can increase your anxiety if they're not put in the context of your situation, which like I said, CBTI is wonderful, but it's not in the context of pregnancy or with a baby. Exactly. And that's like the point you made before about, yes, see someone for CBT, but they've got to soften it, if you like, or got to mm. sort of understand that those hard behavioural bully sleep into place with our sleep <laughs> restriction stimulus control strategies yeah. are not appropriate in all circumstances and pregnancy and postpartum is one of those situations. Absolutely. And look, I must say, you know, we've 
developed a program that kind of fills that gap, but we're just not at the point yet. I mean, we're trying to publish it at the moment. We're not at the point yet where we're able to offer it, you know, to the masses. This type of research is being done, not even just by me, but it's we're not quite there yet as far as a research community or a health community goes, but we are headed in that direction. Yeah, because that'd be great to be able to have either an online resource or readily available resource that women who are either planning for pregnancy or pregnant can access with good evidence-based information and walks them through some skill development in this area. Absolutely. Look, that's exactly where we're headed, but we're just not quite there yet. But I think the other kind of thing to consider with all of this is that women are generally, at least in uh, metropolitan Sydney, and I would say most probably metropolitan Melbourne as well, we're having children later in life. You know, we've got these fantastic careers um, and we're kind of accustomed to being able to control things. And then when you fall fall pregnant, that does fall apart a little bit. You know, you can't control the way your body's going to react to pregnancy. You can't control your sleep. You certainly can't control your baby, so to speak. And that change in a person's ability to control their circumstances, that also really increases anxiety. And because of the way we live these days, you know, we're not watching our aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters bring up their children as closely as what we used to. A lot of it's a real shock to the system and the expectations are very unrealistic. Yeah, that's a really nice point because those exactly those same traits are the ones that we would see as being a risk factor for developing insomnia you know, outside of pregnancy. And then that's if right. you sort of add the challenge of pregnancy and someone's already got those predisposing traits, it just reinforces the almost coming into pregnancy, doing some work to soften those traits or develop skills to help manage those traits and you know sort of let go and be a bit more comfortable with with loss of control. And like you say, it's all about an attitude of fluidity and adaptability and and parenting is much the same, really. Um, So if you can have that open mind from the get-go, it'll certainly help. And so you talked about some research you're doing in sort of programs that may roll out. What are some of the other things that are being sort of thought about or being developed in this area? To be quite honest with you, a large majority of the research that exists in the perinatal field is in the postpartum period. So it's for new mothers, new babies, or in that first year for infants who have specifically poor sleep. There are a lot of programs. The one that we're doing is a little bit more unique in terms of targeting the pregnancy as well. We thought to ourselves, okay, well, people have more time when they're pregnant than they do when they've had the baby. They also are already having all of these sleep problems. So like you say, you know, is there a way to prepare? This is the way that we thought, okay, well, if you can combat the insomnia and the anxiety when you actually have the time and opportunity to do that and you're not being woken through the night by an external baby, maybe that's a good opportunity to practice these things. The program that we developed is designed to be delivered in pregnancy And it's designed to help throughout pregnancy and in the postpartum period. And we did find that it was successful in improving sleep quality and insomnia symptoms four months postpartum. So we were really pleased with that. But I'm not aware of many programs that are targeting the same thing. So if people are looking for more resources and information, where are some places they could look? Uh, I think it's always useful to talk to the midwife as far as pregnancy and the immediate postpartum period goes. I think it's 
quite useful also to understand your parents' experience because a lot of these things do have a genetic factor and not just a, net, a genetic factor but a, um, a cultural influence. You know, if you come from a certain type of family, you're likely to parent in that same way. The way that your mother parented will have a, a large impact on the way you choose to parent most probably. Now, obviously, that's not going to give you any research, but it will give you an idea of what to expect. If people have got that information but still feel like you know they really want to see a healthcare professional, how should they access the healthcare system for this type of care? Look, usually primary care is the best starting point. It's going to the GP. If you have a GP that specialises in pregnancy or women's health, that's a really good starting point. And your GP it may give you a mental health care plan if you're in Australia and you'd be able to go and see a psychologist. I think it's important to realise that sleep is a very specific type of treatment and a very specific uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, although that's available in lots of different domains. Cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia is very specific. So I would highly recommend seeing a psychologist that specialises in sleep if you can find one that specializes in sleep and understands pregnancy as well, that's a bonus. But I think most psychologists would be able to look at your particular context and be able to adapt it to you anyway. Great. Thanks very much for your help, Leora. My pleasure. Thank you. So, Moira, having heard what Leora said, how does what she say sort of gel with the approach you'd normally take? Oh, I loved that interview. Thank you. thanks, And thanks, Leora, for listening. That was excellent. I really, um, really appreciate her expertise and her, her approach is so sensible. It's a very empathic understanding of the position, but really what she's saying is normalise it. Don't, don't make a pathology out of sleep being a bit different during pregnancy because look at everything else that goes. It's an incredible time for your body and your hormones and just um, roll with it a bit. So, yeah, so I, I'm totally aligned with that approach and I think we need to talk about more on the podcast and probably at a different time, but that idea of getting access from a psychologist who's got sleep-specific experience, it's hard. You know, it's, it's, right. it's, 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 there's not many of us and it's also hard for access. And so I think that just highlights what we need to do so much more is the education for every single psychologist, every single GP that they have a really good handle on these slightly nuanced messages we have about sleep, but not not to go too hard on rules and sleep hygiene and education around that. It's actually it's actually often the opposite. It's saying, you know what, yeah. it's normal, just go with it a bit. Yeah. And if I think of you know talks I give to health professionals about sleep, that's actually the one key message is pretty much in all my talks to health professionals is don't hammer people about sleep hygiene. Because yes. people are already giving yeah. themselves a hard time about that, trying almost too hard. So if people are looking for more information, I'll put some links in the show notes of where there are some resources about sleep in pregnancy. And we've also done a previous podcast on something we haven't talked so much about is sleep in new parents. So some strategies of you know, once babies come about managing sleep. So have a look for that as well. So while we had Leora with us, we took the opportunity to get her expertise for a clinical tip. I think there's a pretty broad range of the types of clinicians that do work with pregnant women, particularly when you're talking specifically about sleep. You know, obviously you've got midwives, you've got obstetricians, you've got GPs, you've got physios that will often accommodate people during pregnancy and just advise them about all sorts of things. I assume we're talking about a very broad range of clinicians here. But one of the things that I think 
is the first step with sleep is to normalize it. Normal to wake a, mo- a few more times than you used to through the night. It's normal to need the bathroom in the night. It's normal to be a bit more anxious than you used to be. All this stuff can be quite scary for someone who's not prepared or not aware of it. It's normal to feel nauseous day and night and it's not just morning sickness, you know. So really normalizing everything that they're going through without belittling their suffering is a good starting point. Trying to give them realistic expectations without terrifying them, you know, by saying, okay, well, your sleep's changing and that's a normal part of this. It'll possibly continue to change. It may even get worse. Is there anything you can do in a practical sense that can help with that? Is there something your partner can do to help you sleep in or, you know, can you change your work schedule? So just little practical tips that they can take away. I think it's important to give them the realistic expectations without increasing their anxiety if that's possible. I think another good tip is to aim for relaxation and calmness as opposed to sleep, particularly later in pregnancy. Women are a bit more open to napping, but they say, oh, well, I can't nap. It's just something I've never been able to do. Saying to someone like that, okay, don't nap. Just lie down. Just relax. Close your eyes. It doesn't matter if you don't nap. It doesn't matter if you don't sleep. It's still good for your body to relax. So Moira, come time for Pick of the Month. What's your pick? Well, I came across a very interesting journal article that was published just recently in the journal called Behaviour Therapy, and it was called The Effects of Rumination and Worry on Sleep by a group at Suffolk University, Olivia Toussignon et al. So it was it was really interesting. In a nutshell, they talked about um, that pre-sleep arousal that we see all the time. They've noticed that cognitive arousal has a stronger mediating effect than the somatic arousal. So the cognitive arousal being just your mind going a bit crazy, people talk about can't switch it off and it's just, you know, just going mental gymnastics all over the place. And rather than just the somatic arousal of just being tight, you know, mus- you know your muscles are tight and you're just, you're just really feeling very um, tight in your body. It was, it's a really interesting point, particularly when we think about mindfulness-based meditation and we, we know that it works for sleep. We have noticed, um, you know, with the research that we've done, that it is very much an effect on the cognitive arousal, although we mindfulness talks a lot about the, the pre-sleep arousal with the, the somatic, you know, the, the, the physiological. So it's just a really interesting article. I think that people with an interest in the area of, of sleep and rumination and worry and mindfulness, I think it's a, it's a good read. I recommend it and we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, and thanks, Hayley, for sending that uh, through to us. I got it as well. I'm like, oh, yeah, I like I like that. So yeah. it really hit a tone for all of us because it really resonates with what we see in clinical practice. Yeah, absolutely. It's an exciting part of, um, we, I think, more and more of this type of research will catch our eye. And what about you? What's your pick of the month? So it's an article from a couple of years ago, but it's a word. So think of it as word of the month rather than the article <laughs> itself. So the word is orthosomnia. And so what? it's a term that uh, Kelly Barron and her co-authors from Russian Northwestern University in uh, the US coined for an article they wrote about people taking the quantified self too far. Really trying to talk about are people getting too anxious about sleep, monitoring it too carefully to make sleep perfect. And they got the term from another term called orthorexia, which describes people who try to get a perfect diet for oh, good health. Right. And so based on that, they took off the rexia and added in the somnia yeah. around sleep and have coined the term orthosomnia for mm. trying to achieve perfect sleep, which is the pathway to achieve sleep anxiety. 
and then insomnia. Oh, yeah, and then disastrous consequences. Right. Mm. So there you go. Word of, word of the month, oh. orthosomnia. Oh, I'm going to read that for sure. In fact, anecdotally, I haven't got a paper yet on this, but I've got a new word for you, asomnia. Nice. Rather than insomnia, and I'll talk about that further. I think we could do just unpack that a bit more. All right. We'll hear more about that. <laughs> so that particular article on orthosomnia is in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine in 2017, and the link will be in the notes. So look out for our next episode, which is going to be sticking with a the theme of pregnancy and other things. It'll actually be menopause and sleep. So sleep at a different phase of life for women and some of the issues associated with menopause. So thanks for listening. It's always great to have your company. Please don't forget to send us any suggestions at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And if you like the podcast, review, review us on iTunes or subscribe to the podcast. Great. Thanks a lot. See ya. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.